Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. to episode 46 of The Hilo, the weekly news, current affairs and pop culture podcast brought to you by journalists Dolly Alderton and Pandora Sykes. Do you think we should have a party for its 50th? (laughs) Today we will be discussing Kylie Jenner's baby, food snobbery, Uma Thurman's claims against Harvey Weinstein and Quentin Tarantino and the 100 year anniversary of the suffragettes. Also today, a quick fire round of Ask The Hilo. Dolly, how has your rock star week been on the press junket of everything I know about love? Rock star press junket. I mean, I spoke to a crowd. Milk float. <laughs> spoke to a proud crowd in a Notting Hill church last night. So I know exactly where you were. You're very near my old old oh, flat. Was I? Yeah. No, it's not headlining Nebworth just yet. It's lovely. I'm really enjoying it. Thank you so much to everyone um, for all your support. I met loads of Hilo listeners at the event last night. They're always gate crashing the wrong thing. Your book turns up at the high low. The high low turns up at your book. Know your place. <laughs> but they're always so charming. I don't. I just don't want to be too boasty about this. But I do think we have the nicest listeners. You're going to meet so a real lovely. Going to meet a real dickhead now. Well, actually, sometimes they manifest um, in the high low inbox, as you well know. <laughs> So people keep referring to Dolly as the millennial Nora Ephron, which is a huge compliment, which she duly enjoys, as she rightly should. And my husband said to me at your book launch on Monday, is that Zach's mum? I don't get it. Oh, my God, Zach Ephron. <laughs> I think he was joking, but I'm still not you totally sure. sure. Oh, my God, that's hilarious. I definitely can't be sure. My dad was so happy to finally meet you. And he was saying how lovely you and your husband were. And he said, much smaller than I anticipated both of them. He went, they will have small children. Like he was predicting. I was like, well, I like the note of concern. Much smaller than I'd anticipated. No, he just, he was saying it like a heads up, like you might not know. They will have small children. (laughs) Afterwards, we went for a bit of an after party. And um, apparently when I got into the cab, I was chanting my own name. <laughs> so aside from all of that, have you, had, have you had any time to enjoy anything that isn't by you? No, I haven't had time to ingest too much culture this week, unsurprisingly. But I am halfway through a really, really good book called The Friendship Cure by Kate Lever, which is a very beautiful book and a very useful book about how friendship can change a person's life and how she believes that we are all our happiness and who we are is only really a product of our personal relationships and obviously we focus a lot on um, how romantic relationships kind of support and help us blossom and flourish but little is actually written about how friendships can um, support you and kind of bring out your best self so I'm halfway through that and I'm absolutely loving it it's out in March And um, it looks at all different kind of aspects of friendship from, you know, long distance friendship uh, to the... It's just the whole spectrum of it. I really like it. I'm going to 
buy it for all my friends. I also, unsurprisingly, tuned into Jack Whitehall's Desert Island Discs on Sunday. I wondered if you were listening to Did that. you listen to it? <laughs> I listened to a bit of it, um, and then I think I had to leave my Google home. But I imagine he was quite charming on it. I mean, yeah, he's he an entertainer. Lovely. Yeah, definitely. I mean, you, you really didn't get any sense properly of who he was. It wasn't like a big confessional one. But he talked a lot about his family. He talked a lot about his father. He talked a lot about kind of um, owning and um, make and finding comedy in the in his privilege, in his privilege um, and his kind of strange upbringing. And he's just very funny and very charming. I just think he's, I just think he's a very nice boy, and he chose some very nice music as well. So I really enjoyed that. He's a very good comedian. Yeah, he is. And he's he is. and he is a rarity to have become so established at such a young age. He's still well, yeah, he's, he's still only twenty nine. He said she Kirsty Young said to him, When did you become entirely financially independent? And he said nineteen. God Yeah, yeah. That's I, an interesting question. I, know, I met him when he was when he just started when we were about eighteen or nineteen and he just started doing stand up. Yeah, I watched him when I was at Leeds University. Did you? Yeah, he came up and did a gig there. Yeah, yeah, he's. Um, I think he's a a really, really nice man. So yeah, I really enjoyed that. I think it was a light but enjoyable episode. What Good. have you been up to this week? I've been mainly massaging my perineum. Oh my god, are we actually going there? <laughs> yes. <laughs> Tell me more. That's literally all I have to say, actually. But have you found the angle to do it? That's what I was worried about. I don't know if I'm doing it right, but I presume there's only so many things it can be. Everyone, if you would like to send a demonstration video for Pandora. The oddest thing is that you use olive oil, so you you, you smell not. like a crudite. Surely not. Yes, that's what they tell you to use. Extra virgin? I did use extra virgin, yes. The irony did not escape <laughs> me. <laughs> anyway, I genuinely smelt like a canapé or a crudite, any of the above. And I've got I've got builders and decorators in at the moment and they've got to do some stuff in our bedroom and I'm aware that they will just see next to my bed some, some olive oil, oil and wonder what well, Ollie and I are doing. They might think that's a bit of kinky play between you and Ollie. Well, if any of them have children, they'll probably realise what it's for. Anyway, aside from um, my perineum... I love you so much for talking about that. <laughs> I went to see three billboards outside Ebbing, Missouri, which was astonishing. You said it might be one of your favourite films it now, didn't you? It is jaw-dropping. Quite, I mean, honestly, Frances McDormand is, is brilliant and she would be a worthy winner of the Oscar, but for me, the real hero is Martin McDonough's script. It's just so surprising. You have no idea at any point in the entire film, from the very beginning to the very end, what's going to happen next. N- n- not one single narrative cue but at no time does it feel like it's jumped it's mm. just so clever I've, ne- mm. I've honestly never seen a film do that to have a completely surprising plot which doesn't feel discombobulating for the audience and I love her as well she's just she's coffee. brilliant I can't believe she's 60 yeah she's got an amazing face hasn't she it's a very um, expressive mm. malleable face as all you know great actors do I suppose but no it, it's it's the it's the most wonderful film it's not without controversy where it's set means that there are a lot of let's say not particularly liberal values which to be honest are very much part of the script it's you know it, it is a work of fiction but um, there have been complaints about the depiction of race and dwarfism um, and using that for kind of comical means. But to me, it was very fitting with the script and the environment and the story that they were trying to tell. It wasn't gratuitous Mm. or 
thoughtless. Mm. I've read some really interesting articles this week, loads that have just absolutely made me sit down and just have a think, which is, you know, as a journalist, the most exciting thing when journalism can do that. And it's why I will forever love journalism, just for the ability of another writer to make me think for days and, you know, go off and have all these conversations with your it friends. Does. It can, and the piece that you're in reference to, it, it expanded my mind another centimetre, you know. What, another centimetre? I was going to say inch. It's quite generous. I was going to say inch, and I thought, no, that's too hyperbolic. <laughs> so Hadley Freeman wrote a piece about Woody Allen. It was a sensitively worded piece, but also really brave because it confronted this problematic idea that we have at the moment of silencing women and how that concept is sort of morphing into this idea that you can't disagree with a woman, even as a woman, because you're silencing her like some awful anti-feminist and this piece really dealt with something that I've been musing over and over recently and I've discussed it with you Dolly and I sort of hadn't really got to a conclusion about it and I was a bit scared about expressing my inner conflict about it in fear of incurring wrath but essentially what Hadley's piece says and we'll link this in the show notes and on Twitter so please do give it a read why are we dismantling she says the legal system via proxy in cases of sexual assault claims the pricey of her piece is, I understand that Woody Allen might make you feel icky, but this is not a case that should be tried via public opinion. So she writes, I get why some people feel icky about Allen. Some of us were rolling our eyes at Manhattan, his film about a man's relationship with a schoolgirl, before the leading lights of hashtag Me Too were born. But this is not a case that should be tried by public opinion, and I find it extraordinary that people point to Allen's relationship with Sun Yi and his films as evidence for the prosecution, as if his fondness for pairing much younger women and older men is proof of paedophilia. Young women are not little girls. Me to emerge because so many women have lost faith in the justice system. But justice is not believe all women, as I have seen many people claim. It is listen to all women. And now that women are being listened to, we need to decide what to do with this long-awaited power. How do we handle ambiguity and the right to a presumption of innocence? Condemnation needs to have real substance, or this much-needed movement risks becoming meaningless. I just think it's... Very, very powerful journalism. And also I, th- I really agree with her when she says the point in this is not to go back through all of Woody Allen's work and comb through when characters have slightly strange power dynamics or there's an age disparity or there's a kind of Freudian overtone between daughters and fathers, which that that is a heavy feature of Woody mm. Allen's films. But... That's not forensic evidence. And yeah, I agree with her on that. I agree with her on that. And I think, as she said, if you want this to be taken seriously, this movement, and for it not to be a fad, what it doesn't mean is bypassing the legal system. What it means is questioning the legal system and questioning the society that we're in where these things have been allowed to happen and been covered up. She wrote it in part as a sort of defence of Margaret Atwood and her comments, which I have to say I was not furious about, like some people were. I completely understood what Margaret Atwood was trying to say, which was this slight confusion, as Hadley says, that we're suddenly assuming everyone is guilty. And for me, the really crucial line in Hadley's piece is it doesn't really matter whether or not you think Woody Allen is guilty or not guilty. It's not 
you don't have to unquestionably believe every single woman that makes a claim. What you do have to do is listen to every single woman. And also, the default for so long has been, don't believe the woman. Women are hysterical. Women are attention-seeking. Women ask for it. Women are complicit. I think what believe women means and, and what has been lost in translation is trying to flip that default. So it's like, don't not believe women. Yes, absolutely. And we seem to have gone from one yeah. extreme to the other in the narrative. She also said something really interesting where what's not really w- widely reported is that Moses, Dylan Farrow's brother, has actually been long counterclaiming that she was brainwashed by their mother, Mia Farrow, yeah, I read who that. abused yeah. him. And um, Dylan has dismissed his claims as irrelevant. Mm. But what Hadley says is what makes one report of abuse claims meaningful and another irrelevant you know who are we to decide who to believe was abused it's a really really complicated issue to be fair and as she says this is not black and white this is the greyest case ever it's been going on for over 20 years well I read that Moses that report Mm. of um, everything that he said you can find it online and as Hadley touches on It's certainly not saying this is proof of why I think my father is innocent. It's saying here is a whole other narrative of abuse within this family that is largely undocumented. Yeah. And also before everyone writes in, this is not us saying that we believe Woody Allen is innocent. I don't know what I believe. It's not my place to... We need to approach everything with an open mind, listening to everyone. And also I don't have a a clue. I don't have intimate knowledge of the case. No, neither do I. I'm not on the jury... But what's been very refreshing for me, and I just really applaud Hadley for opening up my mind to realising I could take this stance, is that I don't have to decide whether or not he's guilty or not guilty. And it doesn't have to mean that I am bashing a victim or silencing women. And It's not about doubting the victim, it's about looking at the full picture and giving it the time and attention that it deserves to be investigated thoroughly. Yes, exactly. Another piece I really enjoyed was Camilla Long on how feminism excludes working class women. She's a controversial writer, Camilla, and whilst I think her prose is exquisite and hilarious, I don't always agree with what she says. But she wrote something in a piece on Sunday about grid girls being banned. Grid girls, for anyone who doesn't know, are scantily clad girls who walk the circuit at Formula One. I found this piece really thought-provoking. She writes, Rich women are happy, successful and in control of their bodies and sexuality. Poor or uneducated women are stupid, deluded, moo-cow victims. She goes on to say, in defence of girls who wish to be grid girls, some women fancy ghastly rich bastards and want to hang out with them because for many poorer women, sexy ornament work is an opportunity to pull oneself up. Let us never forget Melania Trump. Obviously, this is the one type of social mobility the left cannot cope with. No, no, this heartbreakingly gorgeous young woman must stay in Southampton with her two NVQs and work in a drudging nail or bikini waxing job, eking out financial independence, which isn't really any kind of independence because, well, feminism. And so all the beautiful, ambitious, working-class women are removed from any meaningful equation. Convenient, no. Now, there's nothing wrong with Southampton before we get acres of emails akin to when Sienna Miller called Pittsburgh Shitsburgh. There's nothing wrong with working in a nail salon please don't focus on that as I said I don't agree with everything that Camilla writes but I do 100% agree with the sentiment at the core of this narrative which is the idea that 
as liberals, we've become so snobby about social mobility because it doesn't fit with our idea of kind of independent feminism. Yes, I agree. And I think it's a really important point to note that being upwardly mobile is not a crime. Mm. And it's also really important to note that we do have, and I've actually written about this before when I wrote about boobs, and this whole idea that when you're a supermodel and it's shot in black and white and put in vogue, a naked breast is sort of really beautiful and feminine. Because but when, also there's like no breast there normally as well, it's androgynous. The absence of yeah. breast. And when it's a big old udder shot in colour on yeah. page three... Of a girl with a big smile. It's revol- revolting yeah. and exploitative and she must be miserable. Mm. Whereas mm. I'm sure there are a lot of very happy page three girls out there. So I think it was just really, I think it was a really important piece to write that we have you have to be aware of the different choices that women make and we are in this area at the moment where it's very complicated with feminism and nudity and my take on this is always so Kim Kardashian and Emily Ratajkowski for example who say that their nudity is empowering as feminists because it's their choice I don't think that taking your kit off is feminism Mm. but I also don't think it's anything to be bashed for and also as we always say you can be a feminist and not every single thing you do has to be a feminist act exactly the last piece I really enjoyed was Jonathan Dean who interviewed rising star 22 year old actor Timothy Chalamet for the Sunday Times Culture Timothy was in Call You By My Name and Greta Gerwig's Oscar nominated Lady Bird and what I loved is Jonathan basically refuses to let Timothy not speak about Woody Allen. I've been reading a lot of journalism recently and it's actually really pissed me off that they're not, you know, for all this like, oh yeah, I'm with women, I'm donating all this money, me too, me too. You then read an interview and they don't say a fucking thing. Mm. It's really, really contradictory. So Jonathan writes, there was a late caveat to this interview, namely that I couldn't ask Chalamet about Woody Allen. The actor recently donated his salary for the director's forthcoming movie, A Rainy Day in New York, which he filmed last summer to funds including Time's Up. He made a statement about it a couple of weeks ago and that was that. I pushed back. Journalists have been accused of dodging difficult questions, but if the interviewee refuses to be asked, that leaves us in limbo. I was then allowed one specific question about Alan by email. I asked three. Jonathan is definitely one of the sassiest celebrity interviewers out there, and in my opinion, one of the best. because He's very good. He is forensic, but not cruel, and he is never a sycophant. A lot of journalists, and I've been in this position before, would be really scared to lose the interview by pushing, you know, by railing against what they've been told they can't ask. And to me, this just shows that he's writing without fear, which sounds a lot easier to someone listening who is not a journalist than to us speaking as journalists. But it's, yeah, it's really, really hard, those interviews. As we said before, it's an art and he's Mm, a great artist. And I hope more journalists don't skate round the problematic questions because that's what makes a really interesting interview. And as Jonathan says, you can refuse to answer the question, but you shouldn't be banned from asking it. No, I just hate this. I find it so increasingly difficult when you interview celebrities that you that they're so infantilized. They can handle a question, as you said. They can. Uh, you you have to trust the interviewer that they won't ask it in a cruel or inappropriate way, which most journalists conduct themselves in a way that they wouldn't. And then, if they don't want to answer answer it, they say, "I don't want to answer that." Yeah, exactly. But you have to be given the right the right to ask. And of course, talking of journalism, we couldn't not talk about Uma Thurman's interview with the New York Times 
about Harvey Weinstein and Quentin Tarantino and Tarantino's extended sort of interview reply via deadline. What did you think of all this? I think it's extraordinary that this is the first time that Weinstein has specifically responded. Yes, so from his, I mean, outer Mongolia... Yeah, Arizona he is, yeah. Yeah, well, Arizona, quote-unquote. Who knows where (laughs) he really is? Yeah. He actually responded... And sort of apologised. Can and I tell you what I think my theory but why? is? why? Why Uma? She obviously holds a power. Because... Or Quentin has said, Quentin Tarantino must have said to him, you have to give her... Something's, something's happening behind the scenes here. I think he's actually... And, and this is not me inciting sympathy for Harvey Weinstein, trust me. <laughs> but I think he is actually... I think he was hurt... I think is his party line on it is that he made a move on her and he read the signals wrong and that she this is the truth he's obviously decided in his head that this was not abuse that he liked her and he tried his luck and she didn't like it and then he sent her flowers the next day to apologize I think he's apologized to her not out of respect for her but out of respect for Tarantino I think that, that's more I think like he's him. done it because there's another man involved and this is the first from what I've read this is the first Hollywood actor who has not just confronted um, Weinstein through a journalistic piece but by extension someone else who's very famous and to also to draw some boundaries at no point does Uma Thurman say that Quentin Tarantino was you know a perv of the highest order like Harvey Weinstein is she categorises his abuse as um you know something else yeah. it's not sexual it's still it's still power play but it's not sexual I also think that Quentin Tarantino so far from what I've read seems like the only man who is replying well, well taking any sort of authentic accountability well I have to say reading it I was really pleasantly surprised but my friend who works in the movie business said she thought it was a really feeble reply and I thought well she was like he's giving too much detail because he goes into extraordinary detail in that deadline repost. But actually, I think having an explanation was quite interesting. I mean, maybe I'm naive, but he made, one, of the, one of the accusations was that, and this didn't come from Uma, to be fair, and he points this out, it came from other people on set at the time, was that instead of letting the actor, I can't remember his name, in Kill Bill spit in Uma Thurman's face... Um, he spat in her face Mm. and people have said you know that was a sadistic um, indication of their relationship and the imbalance the power imbalance and what he said was I thought this actor was great I didn't trust him to do this scene which is quite sensitive in nature I only wanted to do it twice because it's spitting in a woman's face as the director I knew the angle that I wanted the spit to go where it wanted to land on her face how I wanted people to shoot it now lots of people will be like oh yeah 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 sure a likely story I sort of could see that Um, what do you think the man doth protest too much or I think obviously I think that's that's a form of abuse and and I don't think that I don't advocate that at all whether you're directing or not but I think where things get more complicated is that when you are directing it can be a very physical thing it's not like the boundaries of a normal workplace and he is not the first director to be accused of being slightly sadistic and mad on set Mm. Darren Aronofsky um, Jennifer Lawrence who was going out with him at the time has has said that he was an absolute tyrant Mm. to work with in fact almost every director Um, has been accused of being a sort of megalomaniac who makes you do 87 takes in a row. But that is often the prerogative of great art is someone slightly extraordinary pushing everyone to their extremes. As Dolly said, it's never okay to spit in a woman's face. 
but it was part of the script and I was interested to read I was just interested to read his side of the story the, and I wonder if they're still friends because he says I knew she was going to do this he's like guys this didn't come as a surprise I gave her the footage with which she could go to the New York Times he did facilitate that well that's what I was going to say the bit that I found the evidence of his sort of willingness to take accountability yeah. with this is the fact that he gave her this footage of her getting in this car that she was worried about getting in for this stunt which crashed and was obviously an extremely traumatic moment for her which was all his responsibility and he gave that to her so that she could it could come to light and you can talk all you want about taking responsibility in these things but that's that's all just talk like this is him actually giving physical evidence that will incriminate him not only as a very irresponsible director but as a very cruel man I think it was a real turning of the tides and what we've seen Mm. so far Um, people get very angry when you applaud a man who has behaved badly for doing anything right but I do applaud him for this I do think he took a huge professional and personal risk in talking the way he did to Deadline I think it will help the industry as a whole Mm. and I hope that he is not slaughtered for doing this because he's done more than many many other men have Mm. and that's a great start And how could we do an episode of The Hilo this week without talking about our beloved suffragettes? It's been 100 years since women obtained the vote in this country and rightfully it's been a time of celebration and honouring the women who fought tirelessly and often perilously for this human right. In the House of Commons, MP Jess Phillips said the anniversary felt like feminist Christmas, which I loved, (laughs) with many women wearing suffragette sashes. And to celebrate the suffragettes high style, we thought we'd give you some suffragette facts. Ooh, please do. This is my favourite one I found. To protect themselves in violent protests, the suffragettes were trained in jiu-jitsu. <laughs> Amazing. The idea behind the training was that appointed bodyguards would surround leaders like Pankhurst and defend them against the police. Emmeline Pankhurst's husband, Frederick Pethick Lawrence, was joint editor of Votes for Women with his wife. He was also imprisoned and went on hunger strike. Now that's a good ally. But not all women supported women getting the vote, some, including the author Mary Ward, actually actively campaigned against it as part of the National League for Opposing Women's Suffrage. There we go. (laughs) Women, that female... I know, the infighting existed even then. And finally, I also found out that the Royal Albert Hall was regularly hired by both suffrage and anti-suffrage groups, including the National League for Opposing Women's Suffrage. And there were more than 20 suffragette meetings and rallies at the Royal Albert Hall in between 1908 and 1918. Those are great facts. Mm. I also read that one woman imprisoned was force-fed 138 times oh, and never and never caved. When I saw Suffragette the film, that actually moved me to tears, that scene, with Carrie Mulligan being force-fed. It's just so unthinkable. Stylists have made a Suffragette emoji, incidentally, no which way. I might try and download later. There have been some interesting articles today, which is Wednesday when we're recording, where Amber Rudd said that it would be difficult to pardon the suffragettes who were jailed for fighting for the right to vote. Corbyn has said that a Labour government would pardon them immediately and have their criminal records overturned. But Amber Rudd has said that they will look into it, but it's complicated. That's a bit of an unsatisfying answer to me. 
I'm not sure it's quite so complicated. Anyway, there are some nice ways in which the suffragettes have been commemorated this week. A public exhibition of life-size images of the central figures of the suffrage movements are in London's Trafalgar Square. There'll be portraits of these women in an exhibition at London's City Hall. There's a reception for female MPs past and present in Parliament, hosted by Theresa May. And this is the one I like the most, Radio 4 on the BBC's Today programme will use only women contributors and an all-female presenter lineup on its show. Hurrah. Support for the Hilo comes from the Google Pixel 2. Google has been built on asking questions and challenging the status quo. From maps to email, search and beyond, Google has a history of looking at the norm and finding a better way. Each week we're going to do a curiosity challenge where we pose a question to one another which encompasses the Hilo's ethos of covering all things from the personal to the philosophical to the surreal. This week, my question to you is, if you were to Google yourself, Dolly, and I've actually Googled you this week, in fact, what would be the best and the worst thing that we could find? For our curiosity challenge, I want you to be honest. I don't know what the best... What lives on the internet that you wish you could kill and what do you just love for being out there? My band's MySpace page. (laughs) Is it still up there? I think it's still floating around. I'm going to go and find it now. Uh, with that was a band I was in when I was 15 with my best friend Lauren that sadly well not sadly inspiringly didn't really fall apart until we were about 20 and there's a photo shoot of us at her parents house in Pinner sort of black and white arty photos of us posing with various fruits and vegetables so that's not great the best thing your book um, Quite yeah. cool to have a book on Amazon. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I do. That's I'm happy to see that. I know Amazon's a big conglomerate, and we're meant to hate it, but I bloody <laughs> love Amazon. <laughs> so do I. The Google Pixel Two is the world's best smartphone, capturing your best ever photos, whether you're in bright light or dark evening. So starry nights look as good as sunny days. Thank you very much to the Google Pixel Two. From suffragettes to wars over Nutella. It's now time for the top line, read by Dolly Alderton. Tesco is facing a £4 billion bill amidst claims that female workers are paid less than men. They're not the only supermarket embroiled in parity rows. Sainsbury's and Asda are both working their way through similar legal suits, whereby female workers would be back paid the difference. Elon Musk has launched his much-anticipated rocket, Falcon Heavy, with a bang. The billionaire entrepreneur is the founder of PayPal and Tesla, and his SpaceX rocket is the most powerful rocket since the 60s. A DNA study at the Natural History Museum has revealed that the first Britons were black. Analysis of a 10,000-year-old Somerset skeleton named Cheddar Man, after scientists found some DNA in his ear, has revealed that Britons owed more in appearance to Paleolithic Africans from whom all humans descend than previously thought, with their black curly hair, dark skin and blue eyes. There was mayhem in France's Intermarché supermarkets last week after Nutella unveiled a three-day promotion whereby shoppers could get 70% off a 950-gram jar of the chocolate spread. The fracas led to some stores imposing a one-jar-per-person rule to halt the animalistic frenzy. A referendum will be held in Ireland in May to establish whether or not the abortion ban should be repealed. No one under the age of 52 has ever voted on the controversial Eighth Amendment. 
Doritos are looking at launching chips just for women because, as the CEO of PepsiCo, Indra Nooyi, who owns Doritos, told Freakonomics Radio, women do not like to crunch crisps loudly like men, nor lick the dust of their fingers. These will be less crunchy and less sticky. Ministers in Seoul have said the influential sister of North Korean leader Kim Jong-un is to attend Friday's opening ceremony of the Winter Olympic Games, which are being held in South Korea. There had been speculation Kim Yo-jong might be part of the delegation, but few thought it would actually happen. It is being seen as a sign that Kim Jong-un is serious about improving ties with South Korea. It would be the first visit by a direct member of the Kim dynasty. Cambridge University has revealed that in the nine months since introducing its anonymous reporting system, it has received 173 complaints of sexual misconduct. Of these, the overwhelming majority were student-on-student accusations. Montpellier in North Bristol has been named the hippest neighbourhood in the UK, according to a travel guide ranking. A new British brand called Callerly has invented a new sanitary product called the Tampy Liner. It's a tampon and a panty liner in one, hence the name. And you insert the tampon through the liner. When it's time to take it out, pulling on the string will bring the tampon out into a covered sheath between the tampon and the liner. And that was the top line. Tampiliner sounds really complicated. I know. I, d- I don't see the tampiliner <laughs> taking off anytime soon. What's the soon. point of it? Like double protection? I think by the the illustrations that I looked at in great detail. Is it that it covers itself? I think it's to, it's to reduce mess, I think. Does the liner the clamp liner... down like a Venus flytrap on the tampon? I think it's more that the liner can, can act as like a second barrier. Like you're bringing an entire sort of shit out of your vagina. <laughs> <laughs> Lady Doritos, Jesus. It's a bit like Harriet Harman and a bloody pink bus. Also, which of these bitches are saying they don't like licking the dust off their fingers? <laughs> you should see me with Monster Munch. The same people who don't like eating on public transport. Also, only in France could there be rows over bloody Nutella. I know, I know. I like that it was described as an animalistic frenzy. Absolute carnage, apparently. <laughs> Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Let's talk about food snobbery, a cause close to my heart. This week, the writer and former Bake Off contestant Ruby Tando shared a thread of tweets on her Twitter timeline about food and class that really resonated with me. People's fury, classism and ableism at just the suggestion that it is okay to eat ready meals is exactly the reason I wrote Eat Up, she tweeted, with a collection of screenshotted tweets she had received. Sure, if you're the kind of person who can't manage your time properly and don't mind using single-use plastic, please, Ruby, don't encourage these oafs, wrote one. No, ultra-processed food is not pretty amazing. It will lead to an early grave, wrote another. My favourite? One does not enjoy a ready meal. One tolerates a ready meal when there isn't anything better. 
who knew Jacob Rees-Mogg followed Ruby on Twitter. <laughs> so what do you think, Doll? Before we go any further, for the purposes of this debate, I should share that I had a Pizza Express pepperoni pizza from Ocado last night, and it was great. Well, I think I have been quite guilty uh, in the past of being a bit of a food snob. I am quite concerned with nutrition and with produce, but then I am also in a place of privilege where I can afford to go to the supermarket and buy veg or buy things fresh rather than frozen or ready meals. But I've read Ruby's book Eat Up recently and it's really, really, really good and it's really realistic and straight talking. And it's about celebrating all different kinds of food and how they satiate you at different moments in your life. And that's not in the way that other people, other food writers might profess to be, where it's actually still with this like very strict framework about treat days and cheat days or balance or whatever. This is about just celebrating the whole spectrum. And that sometimes Heinz tomato soup is what's called for rather than, you know, 10 hour boiled bone broth. And reading the book, it has really made me um, rethink the shame that I attach to food, not calorie wise, as in its kind of social and identity implications with the food that you buy and consume. Well, hold on to your loins, Hilo listeners. I'm going to get fiery on this. I hate food snobbery, both in personal terms and also in in the cultural sense. I was weaned on alphabet shapes and chipolatas and cream-filled donuts at tea and marble cake after swimming. There were hula hoops on each finger at sports day. There were pears and apples and broccoli, aplenty too. But there were also fish fingers and ham and cheese grills. And sure, these aren't ready meals, but they are what is now largely considered Iceland food. Guess what? My mum loves Iceland. In my freezer right now, I have curries and pad thais and chicken pies and chips and all things made by other people. I also have chicken soup and sausage plat made by my mum because she's a great cook. We just like chips and fish fingers sometimes. But I don't differentiate between the two. I don't decide if I'm going to be common or posh of an evening. And that's exactly what it is. And that's exactly what Ruby says. And I'm so mm. happy she said it. Mm. It's classism. Mm. When will people realise that blueberries and avocados and mango chunks are the entire daily budget Mm. for some families? Why do we assume that this new wellness crusade is something that is remotely applicable to a vast swathe of British society? Totally. And something she says as well is that there's this very offensive and belittling notion that because low-income households can't afford what we've decided is refined, such as nut milks or burrata or kale, that there's no sense of pride or taste or enjoyment in what those households choose to consume. And what she's saying is is that there is as much reason to celebrate the total deliciousness of fried eggs on toast as there is to celebrate quail's eggs with celeriac salt. Yes, I love that, that the idea of nourishment really is nothing to do with the snazziness yeah, the, of your food. Which is only ever decided in a zeitgeist bubble anyway. A writer called Osman Ahmed said something to me this week that I really agree with, and that is that sometimes it can feel like liberalism is morphing into 
uber conservatism. Totally. The idea that there is only one way to eat, live, vote, educate. It's a bit like when people say, oh, I'd never shop at Primark. It should be outlawed, all those workers in China. And my response to that is twofold. Firstly, the underpaid Chinese factory workers are, unfortunately, not limited to fast fashion retailers like Primark. So that's a moot point. Secondly, okay, sure, you say that to the woman who's living off £200 a week with four children. If she can't buy a pair of trainers for £8, her kid doesn't get any trainers. Yeah, it's frightening. It does feel like we're entering into this very conservative space where every decision we make and every word we choose is a sign of how deservingly, worthily right on we are and no one can stray from the kind of exact template that's been provided. No one is saying that you have to eat ready meals and no one is saying that you have to buy or wear £8 trainers if you have the luxury of not having to buy or wear £8 trainers. But I really agree with Ruby's sentiment in all of her writing and all of her work that people don't always have the luxury of choice and that is my main point here. Choice is a luxury. I do have a choice to eat ready meals and I still make it, which is why I come from that with a personal bias. Mm. But I am more concerned with the absence of choice, the absence of luxury that so many people have that in this kind of media bubble sometimes it can feel like people have forgotten as ruby goes on to tweet fundamentally she says i want everyone to be able to eat a hot meal when they want and some people are not able to cook long live ready meals and that brings us back to nourishment Mm. what she's saying is fuck all of your sort of moral indignation at the end of the day i want people to have a hot meal and if it's a hot ready meal so be it Mm -hmm. and i'm sure there are many people who are eternally thankful for ready meals and how they've helped make their lives easier also there is a very strong chance that someone choosing a ready meal is choosing it carefully or with a moment to think about what they're craving in the same way that someone might pick out what they're going to have in their salad or in their stew i don't i don't think it's helpful to characterize that kind of quick and cheap eating as being entirely mindless I also really rail against this idea of attaching kind of moral qualities to what you eat. I suppose I'm quite unusual for a 30-year-old media woman in that I sort of eschew wellness in any kind of diet and I eat what I want when I want and that might be a packet of biscuits for lunch or a bag of donuts for tea. I don't eat that every day, but I do eat cake every single day and I do eat chocolate every single day. And I am aware that the only reason why I'm not judged for that is because I'm healthy and I'm slim And I'd like to point out that even if I wasn't, eating badly doesn't make you a bad person. Yes, exactly. We really ascribe these qualities onto people. And we need to remember that um, moral fibre is absolutely nothing to do with your actual intake of fibre. And also, I think it's about knowing your own body too. I'm someone who is very, very sensitive to food and even to caffeine. If I have cakes and biscuits to excess, I feel really, really ill. My skin breaks out. If I don't drink two or three litres of water a day, I can't concentrate. I have terrible breath and a terrible headache. But I also have friends who can be much more relaxed about this stuff and it makes no difference with how they feel day to day. It really is about your own body and your own personal choices. One of my best friends, Rosie Saunt, who is a dietitian at King's College Hospital and the co-founder of The Rooted Project, which is grounded in science and evidence-based nutrition. And some of you may actually remember Rosie from when we spoke to her about turmeric, which she semi-busted for me. She shared some really interesting thoughts on Ruby's tweets. 
where she agreed that home cooking from scratch just isn't an option for some and that it's arguably classist to expect that it was achievable for all. She also pointed out it's not always necessarily healthier. A 2012 study at Newcastle University nutritionally analysed 100 ready meals versus 100 cookbook recipes from celebrity chefs. Neither matched government healthy eating guidelines, but the recipes seemed to be less healthy than the ready meals overall. Per portion, they contained significantly more energy, protein, fat and saturated fats and significantly less fibre than the ready meals. Mm, so that's I, think that's, I think that's an interesting reminder to those of you that parrot out um, quite sort of repetitive one note food myths. Mm. So thank you very much to Rosie and thank you very much to ready meals. <laughs> Support for the Hilo comes from Treatwell, the brighter way to book beauty. Treatwell, in fact, is not only the brightest way to book beauty, it's by far the easiest. Browse reviews from booking, find off-peak and last-minute prices, choose from over 250,000 salons across the UK and Ireland, and book easily online or on the app 24-7. Beauty where you want it, when you want it. I have my favourite facial again booked through Treatwell, which is the Face Place signature facial at the Rosewood Hotel. And it's so, so good if you live in London and you're looking to treat yourself uh, with a nice facial. They use this tiny little vacuum on your pores, like a little doll's house vacuum. I'm a woman obsessed. <laughs> I actually played a rather risky game of having the facial the morning of my book party, when you're actually meant to leave it a few days, aren't you, before a big event? Mm-hmm. But it seems a lot of you are also a bit disorganised and last minute like me because Treatwell have told us this week that there is apparently a huge peak in Hollywood wax treatments on Valentine's Day every year. Hollywood, no less. Yeah. If you're doing it in preparation for a hot date, that is definitely too late in the day. You're going to look like a just plucked chicken by the time you've stuck on the David Gray album and lit the patchouli candle. And in the interest of conveying the Hilo's feminist agenda, I also must point out that you should only ever have a Hollywood wax if you would like one. <laughs> if your boyfriend is demanding it of you, you're better off on your own on Valentine's Day eating risotto and watching Mad Men, and I will happily join you. Whatever treatment you fancy, pube-orientated or otherwise, you can use the Hilo's exclusive discount for £10 off your first booking. Use the code HILO10, all in capitals. Thank you very much to Treatwell. Who knew there would be a day when I would lobby for us to talk about Kylie Jenner on this podcast? (laughs) But there we have it, that day has arrived. We couldn't not talk about Kylie Jenner's pregnancy and birth announcement, for which there could not have been more pomp and ceremony after nine months of total silence. Ten. Ten, sorry. (laughs) Are you on month ten now? No, I'm on month nine and a bit. (laughs) (laughs) After ten months of silence on the subject and masses of online hysteria and speculation about whether she was indeed with child. The youngest of the Kardashian-Jenner clan announced with a message on Instagram this week that she had given birth to a baby girl on February the 1st. I'm sorry for keeping you in the dark through all the assumptions it read. I understand you're used to me bringing you along on all my journeys. My pregnancy was one I chose to not do in front of the world. I knew for myself I needed to prepare for this role of a lifetime in the most positive, stress-free and healthy way I knew how. There was no gotcha moment, no big paid reveal I had planned. I knew my baby would feel every stress and every motion, so I chose to do it this way for my little life and our happiness. She then posted a video called To Our Daughter, 
which begins with some footage of a home video, a 90s home video in which Chris Jenner is giving birth to Kylie, then archive clips, clips on a camcorder and uh, on an iPhone of Kylie and her baby daddy, Travis Scott, and uh, kind of chartering how their relationship grew and how it developed. And then the story of of how she found out she was pregnant, videos of her growing pregnancy bump, and then finally the audio of the moment she gave birth. And then it's all kind of intercut with these talking heads interviews of her friends at her baby shower, I think, all wearing matching silk pyjamas, talking about what a natural mother she'll be. Some are calling it a documentary, I must say, with my TV hat on momentarily. I wouldn't quite say that it stretches to a documentary I would say more of a sort of prolonged music video. What was your response Panda? Well I cried obviously because I cry at everything now it was very sweet actually I, I thought the footage of her, her mom and momager Chris giving birth to her made even me feel nostalgic and videos of her with her sisters excitedly photographing her baby bump it's quite interesting that whilst it was a bit like a swan underwater like above water mm. nothing shared for 10 months below water she's actually experiencing a very normal pregnancy surrounded by her family and friends mm. it was just that it was sealed inside a Tupperware of privacy. I must say, I did the thing that made me feel most sorry for the people involved were her poor friends being made to sit in the matching pajamas like <laughs> children. <laughs> They're being interviewed on camera about how amazing their friend is. And as I was watching it, I was like, that was definitely a baby shower. There was an obligatory gift registry. (laughs) I have a few thoughts on the whole thing. I think it's more than understandable, actually, that she wouldn't want to share her pregnancy with the world. As we know, things can go wrong in pregnancy. And I imagine for a lot of women, that's a very daunting risk factor and something that you wouldn't want to risk sharing with the world by dint of being in the public eye. And a lot of celebrities don't. The only reason Mm. everyone's up in arms about Kylie is because she's so public. Carrie Mulligan never confirmed either of her pregnancies. Natalie Portman, I don't think, ever appeared Mm. until she was about eight months pregnant. Mm. It's not unusual for famous women to go... You know, yeah, and obviously that's that totally time. their right. And also, I think she's right. It is important to avoid stress as much as possible during pregnancy. And she is one of the most surveyed and scrutinised women in the world, particularly when it comes to her body and her physical appearance. And I understand that when that is in a state of change and her body is suddenly something more than just a tool to sell clothes or makeup products or gain followers, she might have wanted to shield herself from the anxiety that could come with her being, with her body being assessed publicly as it usually is. So the video of Stormy Webster, as her name has now been revealed, um, of her incubation was obviously all the more astonishing because Kylie has managed to keep her entire 10-month pregnancy out of the public eye. There is not one pap picture. And she is one of the most famous young women in the world. Some facts for you. At 20 years old, she is the richest of all the Kardashian-Jenners. She's richer than Kim Kardashian. Sales projections for her actually, apparently, brilliant ask any beauty editor, um, her beauty company, is set to hit over a billion in 2022. She has over 100 million Instagram followers. 100 million? Yeah. Oh my God, that's insane. Yeah. I mean, uh, yes, so, you know, her birth announcement got 11 million likes. My God. Some people have said, see, this is proof that it's possible to not be photographed by the paparazzi, ergo every celebrity who is has asked for it. And I did think that's not strictly true. She has basically been in hiding. Like, Mm. she admitted that of her own volition. It's not that easy to dodge the paparazzi when you're that famous. So I'm not sure that's quite right. I was impressed she managed to keep it secret. It's a bit sad because it shows how mad 
an invasive her life usually is that this is yeah. that this is being hailed this slightly extraordinary moment and revelation well well I was going to say that's a prison that she's constructed herself but it even is she, it is it well, actually was it constructed for her by it her was mother? constructed for her yeah well that's really sad then Initially, I also thought how incredibly imperious and arrogant it is to kind of issue this huge apology for not being public with um, something as, you know, normal and commonplace as pregnancy. But then I realised she is actually right. You know, 100 million followers. There actually was this desperate appetite for people to know whether she was going to have a baby or not. You saw it all over the internet for the last few months and people did feel betrayed that she'd kept them out of the loop. So really... All she is doing is telling the truth in, in that Instagram post. Yeah, I have to say several times, because she was obviously due around the same time as me, I had thought. And I said to several people, I was like, I can't believe she still hasn't announced her pregnancy. You know, even I yeah. was saying that, and I'm not a big follower of the Kardashian-Jenners. So I think to not have addressed that would have been disingenuous. Mm. She's also only 20. She's been with her boyfriend a few months. Perhaps it was a really unexpected development. As one of her friends says on the video, she's only just growing up and now she's having a baby. She obviously needed some time to process. The only bit that I found slightly moving is the also the... (laughs) Slightly moving? I don't want to say I found it very moving. I found it a bit moving. You enjoyed the video. You emailed me during it to tell me you enjoyed it. <laughs> Did I say I enjoyed it? No, okay, you said it was insane. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, the only bit that I found a bit moving was also the bit I found most telling was the fact that there was the video of Chris Jenner giving birth to Kylie at the beginning and then that was mirrored at the end with Kylie giving birth. And I did just think... God, this is this this moment will be used as evidence in classrooms in hundreds of years to come when people <laughs> study the Kardashians that this really is a family. Do you think they'll be Cheddar Man in ten thousand years? <laughs> oh my God, they will so be Cheddar Man. This really is a family that has documented every single moment of their lives, and this is obviously just the framework and the format of how they experience life both individually and collectively as a family, they've made an entire identity and fortune and following and kingdom out of just putting stuff on record in a particular style. That's all they've done. And she was the exception. I wonder how they reacted to, the family reacted, because they're all kind of, they, you all, they all have to be complicit in that. They yes. all have to be careful to, to shield her well, in that complicit, way. Well, complicit or, yeah, or, Supportive. Co- or coerced, yeah. There have been some quite funny memes, speaking of coercion, about how Chris actually masterminded the whole thing. Because there is no doubt the news earlier this week blew up any pop culture related bit of the internet. The entire sidebar of shame on the Daily Mail was about this. There were over 15 stories. It was nuts. I've never seen a story um, like that dominate. You know, the Mail Online is the most read website in the entire world. I've never seen a story dominate like that. There was a meme um, on Instagram with Chris's hand um, hovering over a detonator button about to blow up 2018 with the news. So some cynics have said that it was all a ploy um, and rather grossly, some have suggested that the baby video is PR to get us on board with the fact that Kylie's only 20 and unmarried and it was probably unplanned as she's only been with her boyfriend for a few months. Sadly, I think there could be some truth in that. I think that we live in a world of such slut-shaming. I think that perhaps it was preemptive that if she kind of packages it in this homey, sweet, tinkling piano way, that people might take it easy on her. I mean, that's so sad if that's true. But I do see how that could be true. The only thing I found odd is if she loved the special time of being pregnant 
and the privacy that she gained from it. I didn't understand why she couldn't just keep it private now the baby is here. Because she'd never be able to... She has literally been in hiding. She's been going from private jet into her Bel Air mansion mm. with no um, no deviation. And I'm imagining she doesn't want to live like that now she's had her baby. But I think you could. she could obviously issue a statement, but I just... I don't know why she wouldn't have kept that video for her friends and family. It's very personal. I can see that. She's gone from one extreme to the other with the with the baby. I just felt like when I was watching it that I was very much like, you know, and I'm a voyeur, I'm nosy, I'm a journalist, and I felt like I was very much intruding on something, particularly as this was not a quick video on Instagram. This was like a 12-minute video. Yeah, that's true. I really enjoyed some of the commentary um, that's been written on this. There was a piece titled, Kylie Jenner has a baby seemingly grows up on man repeller, which I don't agree with as a title because I don't subscribe to the idea that motherhood automatically makes you a grown-up. I know some pretty petty women who are mothers. <laughs> nor, does, nor does motherhood sanitise you or your choices just by dint of being a mother but I did agree with a lot of what was written within the piece even though the story of Kylie's pregnancy will be retold picked apart and written up 10 times over those 11 minutes and 32 seconds will always be hers that security is a testament to the agency celebrities gain when they cut out the middlemen so gossip magazines or television or the big paid reveal Mm. as Kylie says and deliver their own version of the story it is also a significant example of someone who has been extraordinarily famous since her youth giving birth to someone who will also be extraordinarily famous since their birth deciding how to share all of this with the world. Whether the touching baby announcement was truly 100% genuine or a well-crafted press release, it is an interesting lens through which to examine humanity in the age of mega fandom. I wonder if it will force us to confront what we mean when we engage with the ideas of celebrity, authenticity and identity. Which I thought was quite an interesting analysis Mm. of, of her choice. And the comments underneath were just as interesting in an entirely different way. It was not so much that they were all sceptics, the commentators, although some were, you know, Someone said, um, I don't believe this family does anything if not for financial gain. But many people really railed against the idea that her baby video somehow restores our faith in humanity or at least restores our faith in celebrity culture. The gist was in the comment section, it's cute, sure, but she had a huge team behind her. Not only that, she has a huge family and a huge wealth. And basically, this baby is so privileged that I sort of don't want to invest (laughs) any emotion in this this very sweet video because it doesn't align with the usual trajectory of motherhood that most of us struggle with. So it was a, you know, it was a bit like, great for her, not, I'm not really willing to engage with this video. Yeah, I don't know if I agree with that, actually, because I think, I think, well, first of all, obviously, she can do whatever she wants. She's allowed to, like, celebrate having a child in whatever way that she wants. But also, I don't actually think this is about privilege. I think it's about fucking narcissism, because whether you're a Kardashian or not, everyone has scrolled through their Facebook homepage and found people who have got married or had children who are treating Facebook as if they are releasing a sort of <laughs> press release about the whole thing. And, you know, you do this. There are some mad people online who would do that, who would make a video like this and they 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 wouldn't think it was inappropriate or self-indulgent at all. So I don't know if it's not. Invest- I don't even think it's necessarily mad people. I just think it's some people. Yeah, no, you're right. That's too judgmental of me to say mad people. It's people celebrate things in different ways. I think it would have, I think it's becoming more and more 
commonplace mm-hmm. to, to document like this. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, for me, it's not even a question of privilege. It's just a, it's just a question of the Kardashians. I also, I don't really like this tone that some people have taken, which is almost like angry with her for celebrating her daughter's birth. For she being, can do what she wants. You know, I know. Well, for being a bit like, um, oh, well, that baby's like so lucky what like why should I give a fuck about it kind of thing mm. and um a lot of that I have to say is jealousy it's you mm. know it's jealousy knowing that as I said she won't struggle with that usual trajectory of motherhood and also she is predicting cretins like me and you and everyone else from analyzing yeah exactly. her every move because exactly. she is a pop culture construct as much as she is a 20 year old woman maybe the other title for this show should be cretins like you and I <laughs> that's really good yeah better than blonde on blonde which was my original idea. That's a fucking like lesbian YouTube video. Well, perhaps we shouldn't be surprised. Of all the Kardashians, Kylie is the most uncomfortable with her fame. She has been much criticised for the plastic surgery that she got yeah. know, on her face at a very young age, which speaks to me of a woman battling the insecurities totally. to exist in this hyper-real, hyper-famous world. On her season opening of Life of Kylie, she talks about fame in quite an interesting way I didn't watch it doll I read about it I'm so blessed that I've got to experience fame at such a young age and learn that so now I can find out what really is going to make me happy and I think that's very telling Life of Kylie that is quite a tenuous pun isn't it I think it's meant to be like Life of Riley oh that's very good (laughs) I've never heard of that Uh, surprisingly I will not be tuning in for the Life of Kylie (laughs) but I can reveal with her imminent baby on the way Pandora has been in talks with Bravo about her fly on the wall documentary, The Life of Panda. Oh, for God's sake. And if you believe that, you'll believe anything. <laughs> it's now time for a quick fire round of Ask the Hilo. Thanks to everyone who tweeted lots of uh, little questions for us to answer very quickly, as the name of the round would suggest. Dolly, kick us off. At Sarah Teb said, which upcoming books are you most looking forward to reading this year? I am, off the top of my head, looking forward to reading Feel Free, the new book of essays by Zadie Smith. Oh, me too. And This Is Just My Face by Gabori Sidibe. Yeah, those are good ones. I'm also looking forward to reading... Everything I Know About Love. (laughs) I'm also looking forward to reading Promising Young Women by Caroline O'Donoghue, who's a journalist who I fucking love. So I'm really excited about that. That's out in June. At Iron Maven 80, strong name there, says, Do you now find yourself singing the Adam Buxton theme song in inappropriate settings? Dolly, this one is strictly for you. I think it's a bit for you as well because you and I do like to sing like and subscribe, oh, like and subscribe. So annoying. Like and subscribe. So, yes, Dolly does. Yes, I do. I sing them all the time. Please, can Adam Buxton come out of his uh, podcast sabbatical? I'm really missing him. Not even having a baby. At L underscore E underscore Ing. What would you tell your 21 year old self? Oh, okay. Well, I hate it when people go that everything's going to be okay or that life gets easier. No, I'm going to go for something really trite. Like I would tell my 21 year old self that Primark smocks are not flattering. Yeah. And that Ikea's rip off Kath Kidston material does not work as a wall hanging. Dolly, what about you? (laughs) Pandora and I recently bonded over our secret Kath Kidston shame. (laughs) Not even Kath Kidston shame, like rip off Kath Kidston shame. What would you tell your 21-year-old self? Don't go all meaningful on me now. No, I would say eat something and ditch the bodycon and stop going out on the King's Road. <laughs> At Helen Lou West says, Polar or Faye? 
Tina Fey for me. My heart belongs to Tina Fey. I like both. I've read both of their autobiographies and yeah, I like both. At Alice Calder 3, did you make New Year's resolutions? Any genuine, meaningful, introspective ones to share? Yes, this is genuine, meaningful and introspective. <laughs> I would like to get into the archers. I've got three written on my corkboard, which are be more honest, be more vulnerable, be on your phone less. Those are my three. Those are good. Mm. I'd like to get into the archers as well. <laughs> Thank you very much to everyone who listened to the High Low. Don't forget to rate, review and subscribe on iTunes. It helps boost us in the ratings and helps other people to find us. You can email us, show at gmail.com and you can tweet us at show. Thank you very much to Acast for letting us use your studio. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye.